Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community, I am Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Mark Dunley. A little shout out to uh, Sally Becker, our normal co-host, who is stuck on college classes, apparently, for most of this semester. But we continue on. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with the United Tenants of Albany providing an update on the fight for the good cause eviction law. Then for our peace segment, we talk with Marina Mann about the war in the Ukraine. Later on, Moses Nagel's reports on a recent hearing in Albany about demolishing the old public housing projects at Lincoln Square for uh, HVCC College Campus. After that, Bria Barthel talks about books with the Open Bookstore of Schenectady, and we finish up, somewhat sadly, with an interview with Steve Pierce, who has stepped down as Executive Director of Media Alliance, but not disappearing. But first, headlines. The Times Union reports the first legal sales of adult recreational marijuana are still at least a month away as business owners rush to comply with the cumbersome regulations under the new law approved several years ago. In breaking news, the Times Union reports that Rincer County Executive Steve McLaughlin was acquitted Wednesday afternoon on all charges that he stole $5,000 from his campaign and then falsified records to cover it up. Jurors began deliberations at about 3.45 p.m. and delivered the decision within the hour. Former heavyweight boxing champion Mike Tyson has been accused of raping a woman in Albany during the early 1990s after he lured, lured her into a limousine. The lawsuit was filed earlier this month under New York's Adult Survivors Act, which opened a one-year period in November for alleged victims of sexual assault to retroactively file civil claims that otherwise would have been outside the statute of limitations. The Daily Gazette reports that a resolution to back the proposed clean slate law that would seal criminal conviction records of formerly incarcerated individuals failed to pass the Schenectady City Council on Monday evening, with the council deadlocked on the measure. Republican Jeff Moore has dropped out of the race for Schenectady City Council under pressure from his local party committee. After the Gazette published information about his controversial conspiracy theory-laden social media posts from recent years on issues such as COVID, gay rights, communism, mass shootings, and the Holocaust. Both houses of the New York State Legislature passed provisions to change the state constitution to protect reproductive freedom. The measure will go to voters in a statewide ratification referendum in 2024. That's it for news headlines. In our first segment, Mark Dunley follows up with the Democratic Socialists of America Tenants organizing meeting in Troy with an interview with Canyon Ryan about the good cause eviction law and other tenant issues. We're joined by Canyon Ryan, who is executive director of the United Tenants of Albany. He is uh, one of the featured speakers at an event that a number of groups, including DSA, 
um, held in uh, Troy on, on Wednesday, 25th at 6.30 p.m. at the James Connolly Social Club. And it was about good cause eviction and, and, and building a tenant power. So I know that good cause eviction was something that you all had won in the city of Albany. It's been in litigation, understanding there was a hearing about that, court hearing about the challenge. Do you want to tell us a little about why is a good cause eviction important? Where does it stand in Albany and what is its prognosis for action at the state level? Sure. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Um, happy to. You know, city of Albany was the first municipality in New York State to pass good cause eviction. Um, we worked really hard to get that bill through with Alfredo Ballerin carrying it as, a, as our common council member, and it passed overwhelmingly. Uh, all the bill really does is say, you know, you can't evict a tenant for no cause holdover. And it also limits rent increases to 5% within reason, meaning, you know, if you build a, a swimming pool in the backyard and the tenant has access to it, you can increase the rent as much as you need. Um, but but you can't unnecessarily increase the rent to, to kick a tenant out. Um, the state struck it down. Uh, the Supreme Court said this is preempted by state law. Uh, municipalities cannot do this because according to like renter law in New York state, landlord has the right to terminate a lease essentially at any time um, if they need to. Uh, so we, the city appealed that, uh, the case was stayed. And then on the 13th of January, oral arguments were heard on both sides. Um, and the city of Albany tried to make the case that no, this is not preempted by state law. Municipalities have a right to do this. And the landlords of course said, you know, the, the Supreme Court made the correct decision. Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, when we were there, I would say that the impression was the court of appeals, or rather the appellate court, um, was not too friendly to the argument. They didn't seem to understand what a month-to-month -month tenancy was. They seemed to you know, have the understanding that when a lease ends, everything's over, and that's just the way it is. Um, so I'm not feeling too confident. We'll have a final decision maybe by the end of February, early March. Um, and, and either way, what we'll determine is how we're going to advocate for this at the state level, whether, uh, you know, if the court of appeals says it's true, this is preempted by state law that gives statewide campaigners the right to say, Hey, we pass it at the municipal level. Now the state needs to step in. If the court of appeals says, Hey, you know, I think the city's right. Um, then it'll go to the highest court in the state, in which case it'll be, you know, cause it'll be appealed again by the landlords easily, um, and meanwhile, municipalities will likely continue to opt in, and uh, and that's just, just the rate it will go, depending on which decision comes through. Well, let's ask sort of a two-part question. Um, one, this was not a lawsuit directly involving the state, but I'm kind of wondering whether any of the state agencies or the state attorney general filed, you know, friend of the court type of brief to say, yes, we believe that Albany does have the right to do this. And then sort of the follow-up question you know, what is the um, drumbeat in the state legislature in terms of trying to uh, enact this type of legislation statewide at this point? Yeah, so the state did not file an amicus brief in support of good cause. They, they kept their hands off. Um, the legal aid of New York City filed an amicus brief in support of good cause, which just means friend of the court. We, we think that good cause is a, a good idea, and here's the reasons why. And United Tenants of Albany, with some help from the uh, Albany Law School Center for what is it, Community Economic Development uh, Clinic, they helped us file an amicus brief with the Bleecker Terrace Tenants Association to say, because of good cause, we're able to organize a tenant union uh, without the fear of retaliatory eviction, and that's why it's important. Um, so no, the state didn't step in. Uh, Regarding like how the state uh, legislators are feeling about good cause, I can't say, but 
But I can tell you that advocates are feeling really good uh, that we're going to pass good cause this year. The biggest conversation seems to be if we're going to make any concessions and what those concessions might be. Um, you know, I've heard some legislators say, well, maybe it'd be nice if cities could opt in. That's really a, no, a non-starter for us. We think that the state needs it. And in fact, in California, where there was an opt-in clause, um, eventually so many cities opted in with variations of what it meant that the realtor uh, lobby lobbied the um, the state to say, hey, you know, this is a little confusing for all of us. We'd rather just a blank slate, uh, you know, version of good cause. So that's one concession people are talking about. Another one is maybe adjusting what the, uh, the you know, unconscionable rent increase limitation is. Right now, I think it's 3% uh, within, uh, you know, however the inflation is calculated in, in the area. But that's another really non-starter for a lot of us. We'll see what the legislature says. I can tell you a lot of groups are ready to get this across the finish line finally. Now, I, you know, lived in New York uh, City for almost a, a, a decade recently. And so I think when you live in New York City or downstate, you get the impression that housing costs are more reasonable in the rest of the state. But I also just read a report that suddenly almost half the counties have at least 25% or more of their tenants paying half of their you know, income for, for rent. And it, in every single county, it's at least 10% of the residents are paying half of their income. How unaffordable is housing, you know, for low and moderate income people, say in the capital district? Uh, I think it's one in three renters are rent burdened, which means more than 30%. And of that, more than 50% of the population is experiencing uh, having to pay for house, you know, for housing more than 50% of their income. And in fact, you know, the average United Tenants of Albany tenant that we serve, the income's about 1625 per month. Fair market rent for a one bedroom is now above a thousand. So we're, we're basically saying the fair market rent for this area is more than half the income for the average low income tenant that United Tenants works with. So that that's incredible. And also, I think it's 52% of children in the United States are considered low income. Uh, I was reading a housing policy book about this exact thing. And there's also another conversation going on about how we calculate what affordable housing is, because we seem to have this idea that it's 30% of the household income. However, if you include transportation costs, tenants with um, you know subsidized rent who who are mandated that they only pay 30% of their, of their income each month to housing, it, it tends to be that they're paying a quarter of that, in, a quarter of their full income on transportation as well. So together, we're talking about, you know, over 50% of their income just going to housing and getting from work and back home. So when we're talking about what affordability is, there's a bigger conversation. But I can also just, you know, tell you that what is considered fair in this area is very unfair to, to low income tenants. Now, we only about two and a half minutes left. I was going to ask you how well did Governor uh, Hochul did in the state of the state with respect to housing that you mentioned before we got the on. Yes, you talked about building some more housing units, but really not building more affordable housing units. But the second part of this workshop that was taking place on Wednesday, January 25th, was about building tenant power, which, of course, United Tenants is, is key to. And you mentioned earlier the Bleeker, the Bleeker Terrace Association Tenants Group. Um, what are some of the things right now that United Tenants is doing to build tenant power? And what are some of the steps you want to see in the future? Yeah, so one great step would just be passing good cause at the state level that allows elders to age in place, in which case they can build a community around their home. That's really important. And that's one of the main reasons 
were able to really organize tenants at Bleecker Terrace because so many people had lived there for the last 30 years, given that it was formerly a, a LIHTC, low-income housing tax credit uh, property. Um, United Times has also been working at 69 Trinity, where uh, Asaf Al-Qayyim, who's a huge slumlord, uh, runs Jerusalem management group. He's actually my landlord because uh, I live in, in one of the college areas. Um, he has a lot of college properties, but also a lot of low-income properties. And in fact, one tenant once said to me, if you're poor in the city of Albany, you've rented from Asaf. Um, so we're organizing tenants there around a lot of code enforcement issues. Uh, recently, he condemned a property uh, or, you know, a, a, a unit where one of our tenants lived uh, because she hasn't had heat since uh, summer. So that's really not going great. Uh, they're, they're basically just structurally evicting a lot of tenants, but there's still a lot of energy there that we're fighting. And also uh, we're organizing some tenants or at least working with tenants at Clinton Ave Apartments, which is owned by Home Leasing. Home Leasing is a, a pretty nice organization on the surface, right? They go in, they buy distressed properties, they fill it with low-income tenants. And then at least at this property, half of the tenants are in uh, supportive and, and permanent housing. So kind of like assisted living where, where, where people work with you, you have a housing counselor on site, whatever. Um, huge issues there. A lot of sewage issues. One tenant uh, claims that she lost her leg because the sewage uh, in her apartment infected a wound that resulted in her leg being amputated. Um, that's well, a huge we only, story. We only have 20 seconds left. Um, so <laughs> Canyon Run and United Tens of Albany, people want to connect with you guys. How best to do that? Uh, 518-436-8997, extension three. And you can always uh, just say you're trying to talk to Canyon and I'll call you back. Thank you very much. And this has been uh, Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And they do have a website. It's utalbany.org for unitedtenantsalbany.org. Uh, there is a forum that DSA is pulling together on the tenant rights. We have our Roman labor correspondent, Willie Terry, there on Wednesday night, and uh, presumably we'll be uh, having a segment from Willie Terry in the near future following up on this critical tenants issue. And for Thursday listeners, that was January 25th, Wednesday night. And now it's peace segment time. This week, Mark talks with Maureen Amand about the call for the ceasefire in Ukraine. For this week's Peace Bucket, uh, we're joined by Marina Mann, who's with many local peace groups, Women Against the War, Pathways to Peace, and the ever-present uh, Grannies for Peace. And I uh, saw uh, Marine recently being covered, uh, participated at, uh, I guess, the Bethlehem's Neighbors for Peace event as part of the United uh, National Anti-War Coalition uh, Day of Action around calling for peace and then the war in the Ukraine. So we thought we'd ask uh, Marina on to explain, you know, what are some of the points that, you know, your groups and Code Pink have been raising about, you know, how do we stop this uh, brutal uh, war that's taking place in the Ukraine? Well, good morning, Mark. Thanks for um, asking me to uh, to share some thoughts. Uh, basically, I think it's really important to start out saying that none of us, um, as part of the Pathways, uh, for Peace Committee of Women Against War, consider ourselves historical geopolitical experts on the situation in U Ukraine. And we understand that the situation is incredibly complex, both historically and um, in terms of geopolitical history or, or energies. However, it feels that it is imperative, given the nature of this war um, and the 
what really looks like what could be an endless war and the absolute um, dangers and destruction um, that are involved that we as uh, a people push our government to do everything in its power to work for negotiations. Again, we understand the complexity of that, but there really seems to be no other energy that um, we should be um, arguing for. And um, just to quote the Emir of Qatar, I think he, you know, he basically says what uh, in the UN, what he, what we're feeling, we're fully aware of the complexities of the conflict and the international and global dimension to the crisis. However, we still call for an immediate ceasefire and peaceful settlement because this is ultimately what will happen regardless of how long this conflict will go on, but perpetuating the crisis will not change this result. It will only increase the number of casualties, the incredible suffering, and it will increase the disastrous repercussions on Europe, Russia, and the global economy. So that's where we as a Pathways for Peace Committee and Grannies for Peace also um, in Women Against War stand and what we are standing for whenever we uh, take a public uh, stance on this issue of Ukraine. Since, you know, we are, you know, in America, um, how do we push, you know, the Biden administration and Congress um, to help accomplish peace uh, in the Ukraine? Well, again, because there seems to be such a will to war. I mean, it's very discouraging when you hear uh, in the last couple of days that, yes, we'll be sending Abram tanks. Um, to, you know, that we seem hell bent on, on uh, continuing um, and seeing the military uh, uh, solution as the only solution. Uh, so I guess, you know, we need to be, uh, first of all, informing ourselves and we need to be really honing the arguments for why negotiations are um, absolutely important. And we need to be sharing those with each other as citizens and also um, with our Congress people. Um, Code Pink, has uh, Medea Benjamin um, of Code Pink um, recently published a book, The War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless War. She co-authored it with Nicholas Davies. Um, and and Code, so Code Pink has been doing a lot of focusing on this issue of, um, of the war in Ukraine, you know, looking at it historically, but also trying to hone again the arguments for why we have to, um, to push our government towards, you know, working for ceasefire. And they've honed Eight, I think what are really strong arguments in which I know um, my um, compatriots in the Pathways for Peace Committee and Grannies for Peace agree with. So I was wondering if I could um, share those arguments at least briefly, Mark, and then uh, encourage Okay, people. go ahead, share. Okay, go to Code Pink to, to flesh these out. First of all, and probably penultimately, the death, sovereign, destruction, dislocation, the infrastructure collapse thinking about people and winter cold. I mean, those things that pull on our heartstrings, the economic devastation, this can't go on. And if it continues to go on, all it gets is more profoundly horrific. So that's their first argument and probably the penultimate one again. Um, Two, that many military experts uh, believe that neither side can or will achieve a decisive military victory. And they quote a number of uh, military experts, including, uh, the, the Ukraine's military chief of staff, who says without absolutely a, a horrific increased um, level of destruction and casualty, uh, there will be no military solution. And um, they quote the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark um, um, Millet, Millet, and, um, and they, and they uh, quote many French and German military experts. So basically that there will be no military solution ultimately. 
um, that their third argument is that the Republicans in Congress more and more grow uh, restive in terms of, of supporting the war um, and with more military aid, more money, more endless um, expenditure of resources that we need in this country desperately. And so that that support will erode. And so this is a good moment for um, us to look at negotiations as the only ultimate solution. Um, they, uh, their fourth argument is that the impact on Europe, it, the skyrocketing, skyrocketing inflation, the crippling squeeze on energy supplies, um, that there's a growing war weariness. And um, polls in Europe indicate that uh, people are more and more growing um, disenchanted with this war or experiencing what the Germans call war weariness. And so again, um, there's an energy there in Europe to sue for um, renewed efforts for diplomatic solution and that we should join that energy. They also argue that um, the UN General Assembly, uh, there's 66 world leaders who are on record who have argued for peace talks so that there's this global energy towards negotiation and to ending the, the horror of, of uh, the military um, solution that we seem to have what is our, our only one. Um, they argue also um, for the environmental impact that it's horrific, it, it can't go on. It just um, adds to the, the challenges of climate change. Um, and included in that is the, uh, the danger of radioactive release from nuclear power plants. They say the North Stream pipeline sabotage created a methane emission that's equal to a million cars uh, in a year. At some uh, point, the sanctions on uh, Russia energy triggered justification for, for further rather than less development of the fossil fuel in, uh, industry. So all of the crying out for solution climate change issues are being um, acerbated um, and, and uh, increased because of this war in Ukraine. And, and therefore, uh, they argue, again, that's a strong reason why we have to move towards negotiation. Um, they also talk about their seventh reason is the global impact economically is, is um, severe. Uh, and in, in addition to the effect on Europe, um, we're robbing the investment um, that we need to make and to eradicate poverty, the economic inequality in the world, the impact of climate change, that um, the global economic effect of this war is untenable and unsustainable and just moves us backwards in, in a point where we need to be moving forward on, on solution to these uh, problems that we could solve if we invested and had the will um, that we seem to have for war in Ukraine, if we could in, invest that in peace and, and um, sustainability. And then finally, and perhaps powerfully, they argue that the danger of nuclear war, along with many other people who are arguing this, between the world's two greatest, greatest nuclear powers is real. There is an existential danger that if Russia was is uh, back to the wall in terms of, of losing this war in terms of a military um, solution would in fact revert to, or some accidental um, event could move us to a nuclear conflagration. The two-part question, some people in the United States support the right, the United States military to send weapons to Ukraine, uh, the right of defense. Uh, how do you respond to that? And then also if people want to get more information, how can they do this in 30 seconds? There are all kinds of geopolitical arguments in uh, various sides, but the, the absolute imperative is that the only answer 
will be in the end negotiations and we have to move towards that. And Mark, I'd like to say that uh, uh, our Pathways to Peace Committee is inviting Medea Benjamin in April to speak in the area. She will be here for three days, speaking at various colleges. There will be public forums. We'll be giving information on that. And in addition, we'll be standing on the corner on February 14th on Wolf Road and Central Avenue again to say this as Grannies for Peace. There has to be negotiations. We have to move towards peace. This can't continue as it is. Well, thank you very much, Marina Mon, Women Against War. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So the Biden administration this afternoon announced that they were sending 31 high-end MI Abrams tanks to Ukraine now that Germany has agreed to send 14 Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine, both in anticipation of a renewed spring offensive as the killing fields increase. Uh, Just reminds me of the uh, war movie with tanks, Fury 2014 with Brad Pitt. I don't understand why we can't send over, you know, if not the expendables with with, uh, Sly Stallone, uh, at least the Avengers to sort of solve this uh, problem. And I will note that this morning, the leading pitcher in the Academy Award nominations with nine Oscar nominations is the German uh, movie, All Quiet Along the Western Front. Just sort of scenes that Hollywood wants another war out there in Europe. And for those just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunley. I'm Sina Basilahiki. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear... You can support this program by telling a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a relative. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. The Albany Common Council held a contentious public hearing on January 19th about an application for funding to demolish buildings in downtown Albany and build a new campus for Hudson Valley Community College. Hutz, uh, Rose Snagel reports. On January 19th, the Albany Common Council held a public hearing about asking for a grant from Restore New York for $3 million to help fund a massive redevelopment project in the south end of Albany. The plan involves the demolition of three Albany housing high-rises in Lincoln Square. The area would then have an expanded campus of Hudson Valley Community College built on the site. The hearing was very contentious from the start, beginning with Danielle Hilly. I am asking that the council deny the progression of the Lincoln Square project. The reason for that is I do not feel that the community has been appropriately apprised of this project. Yes, I understand that it is part of the larger South Pearl Street initiative, but South Pearl Street and Morton Ave are not the same. And the initiative is so large that it requires several days of conferencing to in, in order to have a, a fruitful discussion with community members about any one of those projects. If this is something that the council has interest in moving forward, 
it needs to be sent back to the drawing board. It need, there needs to be specific community meetings on just this one project. It cannot be all of them. The South Pearl Street Initiative is kind of like a bill in Congress. You think that you're supporting lowering taxes, but in fact you're also supporting saving an endangered fish, bulldozing a forest, and giving money to an oil company. There's just too much in this one initiative to properly communicate it to the community. This always happens to the South End. We always get told what's best for us as opposed to being part of the planning and the participation. Good evening, members of the Council and President Ellis. My name is Sarah Reginelli. I'm here tonight to speak about the HBCC West Restore New York application as president of Capitalize Albany Corporation, the organization assisting the city with the grant submission. The city is requesting the council's approval to seek New York State funding to advance the concept of demolishing the currently vacant and condemned Lincoln Towers and building a roughly $60 million Hudson Valley Community College facility, housing the Educational Opportunity Center and additional credit-bearing and non-credit-bearing community college space. Tonight's request is really about opportunity. Specifically, it's about asking the council for an opportunity to begin exploring this concept by allowing the city to compete for funding to help offset the exorbitant cost of reusing that critical site adjacent to Lincoln Park. It's about an opportunity to tap into an essential state resource, one of a precious few available, to remove these obsolete buildings before they become a burden on the community. It's about an opportunity to deliver directly on the vision created by the hard work and dedication of the South End community over the past 15 years, all of the consistent feedback that has been provided in planning efforts and community conversations, in meetings and surveys, all of the grassroots work of community organizations and organizers who have steadfastly called not just for blight removal and affordable housing, but also for economic opportunity, job training, and educational advancement, who most recently in September of last year included this specific project in their list of priorities for the South Pearl Downtown Revitalization Initiative application. We're asking the council tonight to provide the opportunity to explore this potential. The grant, whose application was released only this past December, is due next Friday. We're asking for you not to miss this opportunity to vote yes and allow us to put our best foot forward by applying. My name is Roger Ramsamy, president of Hudson Valley Community College. Hudson Valley Community College is 70 years old and has finally made a very strong and concerted decision to come into the city of Albany and support the students who live in this region. There is over 3,000 students that cross over the river from the city to come to Hudson Valley the largest population of students that come to our campus is from the city of Albany. And the journey means that some of them will drop out along the way. Hudson Valley has made the decision to come here and set this up in four phases. Phase one is the strongest of its phase in which it has to raise, not given money, raise $60 million we're putting an infrastructure down in which we will take our Equal Opportunity Center. And for those of you who have not seen one, please do go into Troy, where we do have our Equal Opportunity Center, which service kids who does not meet the income quality line. These are kids and families who will never have stood a chance 
to get into college. Hudson Valley in its phase one is to bring an equal opportunity center, a $60 million complex that will serve these kids in not degree programs, but in programs that put them into their own business, from hair salons or hair engineers or whether it's welders or whether it's plumbers. These are the programs that are necessary for our kids right now rather than degrees. Much of the dissatisfaction with the proposal from community members seemed to focus around their lack of inclusion in the decision-making. Councilmember Derek Johnson from the Second Ward spoke on this. Many of the things that you talk about are very impressive. Albany had a community college, Junior College of Albany, and it turned into Russell Sage College, and it's still located in, in Albany. So we did have a um, community college at one time, and I'm aware of it because my mother and father attended it, as well as my grandmother. But my question is, like, you know how hard it is to get these folks in here to, to a meeting? I've been doing this for five years, and I've never seen this many people from my neighborhood, right? And then when, you know, our people come to a meeting, when they have to um, wait a long time, generally they fade out. But as you can see, nobody has left this room tonight. You know, um, we don't dispute what you are promising to us. But, you know, unfortunately, this has been told to us in straight face in the past. So, I, and, and this, this meeting is being televised and some of the names that are being used as supporters of this project are reaching out to me. And Mr. Trayvon Jackson of the Blue Light and the South End Grocery are not supporters of the Restore New York grant. The information presented tonight was incorrect. We wrote letters of support for South Pearl Street DRI, including the South End Grocery, only for the city to leverage support for their own separate initiative without asking permission. We were never looped in on the Restore and HVCC and to this day have never engaged as partners on that project. So, you know, um, as a person who is representing the people that you are um, listing as supporters, I'm getting conflicting information. South End resident Zilka Saunders. The first thing I'm going to point out is the lack of transparency in disseminating information about this project to the community. I received invitations to go to a public meeting about aesthetics on South Pearl Street. And then it became apparent that sometime in between receiving that message and this whole dissertation about all of these different beautification options, that HVCC was just slid in there. Not okay. Um, it showed a, a purposeful, purposeful attempt to kind of tuck and hide something underneath the face of things that somebody would think is benign. But if you're telling me you're gonna knock down a long-standing building and you're gonna bring something else in, and I haven't heard anyone speak about the issues that led to the level of dilapidation that no one could live there anymore. This is a community that struggles, right? So you think that putting a $60 million project in the middle of a community that struggles to even keep a housing project in decent running condition is going to be a good idea. This is business. Where's the market research? What happens when you bring a huge project like this in the middle of a city that's struggling and then nobody goes? 
What happens to the community when this project fails? Did anybody think about that? Does anybody care what happens when a $60 million project becomes the sore, becomes the anchor that this community can't come up from? That's what I expect when I come to a council meeting with elected officials. I know a lot of you, you guys care. You're, you're good people, you're good council people, you're conscientious, but a lot of you failed on this, and it's not okay. It's not okay. You need to do better. And before you really vote yes, like I know all of you, most of you who, are, who came here to vote yes, nothing said here is going to change your mind. When that fails, I'm going to call your name. Following the hearing, the council voted 9-3 to three to approve the resolution. Reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, this is Moses Nagel. So I admit to find this very fascinating. Uh, I participate in the South End Community Collaborative, which is about three dozen nonprofit organizations working in the South End. Not heard anything about it in any of the recent meetings, so I'll check in with them. Actually, the big issue they've been talking about uh, has been the expansion of the Capital City Rescue Mission in the neighborhood, which unfortunately many groups oppose for various reasons. And I'll be very curious to see how the community groups have to react to the concept of putting the Hudson Valley Community College campus into the South End of Albany. So we will definitely be following up on this issue. And after that report on the building of a college campus, we head to the books where Bria Barthel brings us a new bookstore in her ongoing coverage of books. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and today I have a new person to share book recommendations with us. I'm talking with Lily Bartels, the adult book buyer at Open Door Bookstore. Lily, tell us about Open Door Bookstore. Thanks, Bria. The Open Door has been in Schenectady in the same location in downtown on J Street for almost 52 years. So we have been really a stalwart anchor uh, downtown. Uh, we're right across from City Hall and diagonally across from the Schenectady County Public Library. And um, we think of ourselves not just as purveyors of books, which of course we love doing, um, but also as a, a, a community resource and a place where people will greet each other in the aisles and come to us for book recommendations. We also work with uh, schools and other local organizations, and um, it's still a vibrant, uh, very well-managed and well-run uh, business, and we owe a great deal of that to our loyal customers, some of whom have been with us for decades. And besides books, you have another part of the store that is a wonderful gift shop. Give us a sense of what we'll find there. Oh, it's it's just a cornucopia of wonderful, unique gifts. So everything from candles and jewelry and um, kitchenware and socks and woolen goods and soaps, you name it. We have comestibles. It's a wonderful place to shop. We do a lot of business in the gallery at Christmas time because there's almost literally something for everyone. Okay, but let's get back to books. Lily, I understand you have a few books that you are extremely excited about, so let's get going. The first one that I want to talk about is a nonfiction book that is getting a lot of attention, and in fact, I just found out it's going to have the cover of the New York Times book review this coming Sunday. We initially, I bought a, a small number that immediately went out the door, so now I have many more coming in, and the title of this book is Master, Slave, Husband, and Wife by a writer named Ilian Wu. And this is the remarkable story 
of an enslaved couple named Ellen and William Craft, true story, who escaped slavery during pre-Civil War, obviously, through the most amazing, daring um, way you can imagine. Um, Very high risk, but they took that risk because they so wanted to be free. And what happened was Ellen, who was a fair-skinned enslaved woman, disguised herself as a white man traveling north to get medical attention. And so she had bandages on her face. Um, She had her arm in a sling so that when she was called upon to sign paperwork on this thousand mile journey, she could have that as an excuse to not sign. And her husband, William, um, posed as her slave. And in that way, they traveled not in secret, not via the Underground Railroad, but in broad daylight via steamboat and train and carriages um, and they sustained this this um, disguise all the way to Philadelphia. So a thousand mile journey during which they had to dodge slave traders, military officers, even friends of the people who had enslaved them who could have identified them. Sounds like a wonderful st- story. And you said that's a true story and will be featured on the late January book review in the New York Times. What's next? So then I've just read a, um, a wonderful book that actually doesn't come out until February 21st, but it's called, it's a novel called I Have Some Questions for You by uh, the author Rebecca Mackay, whose previous book, The Great Believers, was published to much acclaim. It was shortlisted for both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. This story has as its main character a woman named Bodie Kane, who's a successful film professor and podcaster, um, who in her youth, as a teenager, she attended an elite boarding school in Vermont called the Granby School. She was always miserable there. And then in her senior year, her ex-roommate Thalia was murdered. And the process of finding that murderer and convicting him in short in a very short amount of time has produced in this you know in this age of true crime aficionados um, a very robust uh, online discussion about you know the many potential flaws in how the case was tried and prosecuted it's worth noting that the person who was uh, convicted of the murder was the uh, this the campus's Uh, athletic trainer who was a black man. And of course, this young woman, Thalia, was a white girl. So you've got themes of racism, classism, sexism threaded throughout this story. But I don't want to make it sound like it's heavy, although it's certainly the topic is heavy. But for Bodhi, she wants to forget everything that happened in her past. She has no desire to, you know, she wants to let sleeping dogs lie. But the Granby School invite, invites her back to teach a two-week two course. And as you might expect, she finds herself sort of inexorably drawn into, into the case and all that has emerged since about the flaws in how it, it was investigated. And that book, again, is I Have Some Questions for You. By Rebecca Mackay, and it is a page-turner. Okay, and the next book. Um, so I'm a person who... Um, who loves to wander around old cemeteries. And I have, let's just say, a certain son who finds this a a macabre interest of mine. But I actually find it a very peaceful pursuit. First of all, 
Many cemeteries are beautifully laid out and landscaped with very old trees. But above and beyond that, I love to read the old headstones. I love to look at the names and the dates and try to imagine who these people were and the headstones around them. What relation did they have? It makes me feel very grounded in the past, and I just find it fascinating. So I want to talk about this book that's just come out called Over My Dead Body by Greg Melville, which gives readers um, a lively and wide-ranging history of American cemeteries and reveals how they not only reflect their history, the the passing eras of time, but have also surprisingly shaped those eras. So for instance, cemeteries gave birth to landscape architecture, to famous parks, they influenced architectural styles, and they also inspired some of our greatest writers, Emily Dickinson, Walt Whitman, um, uh, Emerson, and they Again, unbeknownst to me, they also were used as political tools to try to sway the um, the country's discourse. So each chapter is devoted to a different cemetery across the country. It's filled with really astonishing facts. And for me, it changed how I think about the past, giving it a more complete and honest telling. And I'm sure most readers will find that to be true as well. I lived for a number of years near the big cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Mount Auburn Cemetery. And as part of that, I, I did some research on the meaning of different images that are put on, on tombstones. And there was one with, a common one was a finger pointing up, which meant they're going to heaven. And I actually found a tombstone, I don't think it was there, but someplace else that had a finger pointing down. <laughs> Um, I I don't know what to do with that information, but my favorite tombstone of all time is Mel Blanks, who, of course, was the the voice of uh, the Warner Brothers cartoons, so Bugs Bunny and and Porky Pig, and his just has his his name, the dates, and that's all, folks. Very good. Okay, so again, that's Over My Dead Body by Greg Melville, and the last book, I believe? Uh, Another nonfiction, I... Another thing that I very much love is wandering around New York City, which I don't get to do nearly often enough. But this book, The Intimate City, Walking New York, is a compilation of articles that ran in the New York Times by the Times' architecture critic, Michael Kimmelman. And they ran during the, the darkest days of the pandemic, and people became very devoted followers. So what he would do is he would choose a companion to go on these long, meandering walks through, I think it was 19 neighborhoods, so four of the five boroughs. And he would go with an historian, he'd go with an artist, he'd go with an architect, and other people who know New York best. And their walk in their walks, they covered, and this is a staggering number to me, some 540 million years of history. So these conversations are intimate, they're funny, they're incredibly in, uh, um, informative. Um, and uh it's the, he sort of explored the what is the essence of urban life in New York? What's its social fabric? And most of all, what are the everyday realities that, taken all together, comprise the greatest city in the world? Okay, well, thank you, Lily. That's Lily Bartels, B-A-R-T-E-L-S, the buyer for adult books at Open Door Bookstore. And if people had questions or wanted to order, tell us how to find Open Door Bookstore online. You can go to uh, opendoor-bookstore.com. 
You can also call the store. We're happy to talk to you at 518-346-2719. Or most most preferable, come on in. We are at 132J Street in downtown Schenectady. Come on in. We're happy to talk to you about books. And most especially, we're happy to recommend books for you. And also check that uh, website for information about author talks. I've been to a couple here that are just delightful and informative and fun. Thanks a lot, Lily. You're very welcome, Bria. It was a pleasure. And that was Bria Barthel uh, with Lily Bartais from the Open Door Bookstore in Schenectady about some of the book recommendations. You can check out the books listed at mediacentury.org when you check out the segment. And Brea Barthel has a number of ongoing segments about books and libraries, uh, particularly out of Troy. The Sanctuary for Independent Media is currently in a very exciting moment of transition. After 18 years in the role of executive director, Steve Pierce has stepped down to pass the leadership torch to Kristen K.P. Holler. Steve has been incredibly influential to me as a former intern and current staff person and to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Here's the first part of a two-part interview. Hello, listeners. My name is Lavender. And I'm here with Steve Pierce, who is the who is a co-founder and the former executive director of Media Alliance, also known as the Sanctuary for Independent Media. He joins me now to talk about his time overseeing this organization and stepping down from the role. Steve, thank you so much for joining me on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm excited to finally get to interview you after all my years as an intern and volunteer at the Sanctuary. Oh, yes. Glad to be here. Great. So you came into the role of executive director with a lot of previous experience. Um, so what were some of those significant jobs or roles that you held before uh, your work at the sanctuary? Oh, well, of course, I'm very old. So that that's kind of a long list. Uh, but I started out, um, you know, way back when in college, uh, working at my um, at the community radio station that was based there. And when I uh, got out of college, I went on to work at a uh, community radio station in New Orleans, uh, WWOZ, uh, the New Orleans music station, which was just going on the air when I got there. I helped to get it on the air. And I worked also at the same time as a freelance journalist for National Public Radio and other outlets. You know, did a bunch of stuff there. I did studio, radio studio installations at community stations around the country, a bunch of different stuff. And I went from there to work in New York City at the um, Pacifica radio station WBAI. And from there, I went to a community television organization called uh, Deep Dish TV, uh, which distributed um, video to cable stations, cable systems all around the country. At a time pre-YouTube, it was hard to get um, independent media distributed at that time. And then I went to grad school at RPI and uh, ended up co-founding the sanctuary. There was no executive director role. It was all a volunteer operation when we started. And over the past almost 20 years, what was once the Hudson Mohawk Independent Media Center, a group of uh, anti-war activists and artists uh, who produced video, turned into the Sanctuary for Independent Media and has become what it is today. So that's the short story. Wow. So your your heart has kind of always been in this industry and a lot of involvement in radio and in public media. 
Yeah, community media. Yep. I'll uh, make a distinction between public media and community media. Public media, you know, you think of national public radio, public broadcasting, which is, um, you know, more or less non-commercial, but not particularly community-based, although that's changing a little bit. At the, you know, community media is really about giving people the skills to um, create their own media, not creating it for them. Yeah, that's a great point and important distinction. So how did all all those experiences shape your your progress at the sanctuary and what were some of the most important skills that you transferred from your previous work oh well that's a that's an interesting question um it's a lot uh i think uh i learned how to work with volunteers to a, a large extent through my uh, work in community radio um it's a whole thing unto itself it's a it's a much different environment for for uh, unpaid people than you know going to work at, uh, at even a public station where the roles are limited to answering phones during fun drives and stuff like that, not really creating media that's on the air. So at the sanctuary, pretty much everything that gets done is done by volunteers. Uh, there's a small staff of people who, you know, I like to think that we we get paid to do the work that nobody else wants to do that has to get done. And uh, the fun stuff gets left for, for volunteers as much as possible. Uh, so I learned that I've learned a huge amount about everything in in, um, in my work in community media because I met so many different people, people I never would have met otherwise, for all different walks of wa- uh, life, all different interests. So I've learned about um, music from my uh, colleagues and uh, art and politics and all different kinds of things. It's been a real uh, life's education uh, doing that, and I think that's one of the real values of community media is it provides a physical space where people can come together from wherever they're from and meet other people and work together to create uh, and make a difference in the world. It's one of the few places where people get together for a motive other than um, making money. That's the yeah. prim- primary organizing uh, factor in our culture. And so the community media world has also been an outliner, uh, an outlier in that way. And I've been happy to be a part of it. I would have never met you uh, <laughs> if it hadn't been for this. Yeah. Yeah. That- that's great. So glad that you had those experiences and, and brought it to this to this to this organization. In in relation to that, what's something that you wish that you did know when you first started out in the in your early days at the sanctuary as executive director, um, and in your time in this role, what what's been some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? Well, you know, I didn't start as executive director. I started as a as an unpaid volunteer. The group of people who started the sanctuary were originally oriented around, as I said, um, anti-war video. We were uh, a collective called the Hudson Mohawk Independent Media Center, one of, I don't know, almost 100 collectives like ourselves uh, around the world. We were working at a time in the late 1990s and early 2000s when there was a popular uprising against corporate globalization around the world and the indie media movement that we were a part of was was really the the media arm of that uh, of that um, anti-war anti-capitalist anti-racist anti-violence organizing so that's what we were doing we were activists that's primarily what we wanted to do and we we um, decided we'd start we'd um, done a bunch of different things we, we met for a little while um, at the YWCA in, in Troy and different places and realized that we needed to have our own space. And that was one of the things that a lot of the indie media centers at that uh, time were doing, trying to create space. Um, and we, we had made some money from 
uh, creating a video called Independent Media in a Time of War with Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! Uh, at the start of the Iraq War, uh, when an anti-war position was uh, unusual. It seemed like a really great idea at the time for most people, for us to be invading other countries in response to um, 9-11. And so we put out this documentary, and what we found was there's a huge outpouring of interest in it because people all over the country, all over the world, were also thinking that what they were seeing in the news and what they were hearing just didn't make sense. It just seemed like an outrageous misstep. Um, and so they were interested in seeing the video and they were interested in, in joining up with other people who, who shared that view. And as a result, the video got out all over the country and all over the world, largely due to Amy Goodman's uh, constant touring and uh, selling them at events. And so the, with the money that we raised, we ended up uh, renting the building that's now the Sanctuary for Independent Media. We figured we might make a go of it for about a year until the money ran out from the film. And uh, if you had told us uh, at the time, uh, and around 2000, that we'd be around in you know 20 years and uh, all the different things that we'd be doing, I, I would have said, you're crazy. There's no way we're going to do all that. So uh, I guess I've learned that nothing is impossible. It's difficult to predict the future. I mean, there's many different things like that. But uh, True that. Uh, there's... Um, you know, a lot of lessons along the way. But, um, you know, it wasn't like I got hired to be executive director. We sort of created, I was sort of the unexecutive director for a lot of that time and not really a role that I ever wanted to have. And, um, you know, executive director implies a top-down uh, structure, a corporate structure. Um, and in fact, nonprofits are, are corporations, they're nonprofit corporations. And we, we were a collective and tried to be non-hierarchical, um, open uh, decision-making process. And so uh, the organization has evolved into a more traditional structure over the years, but uh, that's where we came from. And so what I've what I've learned is, you know, the difficulty in trying to maintain an, uh, an alternative organizational structure in, a, in an environment where uh, everything really is pretty corporate and top down, uh, whether it's for profit or not for profit. So that's a challenge. That's that struggle is, no, is never done, I think. So tune in to our next show to hear part two of this interview with Steve Pierce by Lavender and keep listening for an interview with a new executive director, uh, Kristen K.P. Holler. I, I will mention I was one of the co-founders of the Hudson Mohawk Independent Media Center. Along with Steve, one point I would disagree with, Steve, is that all wars initially has support in the United States. And in fact, the war against Iraq had a million people in the street, and the New York Times called us uh, the second global power on the planet, which is laughable in hindsight. And that's our show. Ah, uh, that was my line. And we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Mark Dunley. We want to thank all the volunteers uh, for tonight's show, Moses Nagel, Bria Barthel, Lavender, and myself. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.